I don't think the chefs are educators. I think chefs should create good food and give very good hospitality and a good wine list. Okay? But I do think it's very natural for us and should be very natural. We should say, you know, guys, you should move to different kind of breads. Like we serve here. You go out, you get a beautiful piece of bread next to your uh, meal from, I don't know, a small baker. And it's uh, obviously it's fermented naturally and etc. etc. So why, why, why when you go home and you feed your kids, you buy supermarket, you know, wrapped white bread? Why? Doesn't make any sense. Eat less, but eat better. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Boy Atlas. Our guest for today is Yair Yosofi. Yair and I met in Tel Aviv a few months ago when I was traveling there for work and I actually had the opportunity to, to dine at his restaurant, Brut. And uh, he's currently doing a project called the Mediterranean Food Lab, which is an effort to redefine the flavor industry. And I think it's a component uh, very important in the whole uh, processed food industry. And uh, he is classically a chef who worked for many years in Paris, uh, in, in Israel as well. And then now he's uh, turned into this fugitive. And I discovered that while our chats in Tel Aviv and I thought it will be a super interesting conversation to hear about his new project. And a little about how he sees Israeli cuisine, how he sees Israeli gastronomy for a country that's so young. And, and, and where the future lies for this. And also a lot about his project that is super exciting uh, to know more about. So yeah, yeah, thanks a lot for joining with us from Israel at the moment. And uh, yeah, if you could please introduce yourself to us. So I'm Yair Yosefi. <laughs> um, um, I've been a chef for the last 25 years or even more maybe. I started cooking in Israel in the 90s, a long, long time ago. Uh, in 2000, I moved to uh, Paris, where I started work. Actually, my first work was in a very small uh, epicerie. Um, it's a speciality store uh, called Israel, with a Z, not an S. Um, it's an amazing shop in the fourth, on the small fourth quarter selling spices, spice mixes, and produce from literally all over the world. It was a very interesting experience. So this was the first thing. Then I moved to, I started working in restaurant. In the beginning, I worked in a Michelin star restaurant, uh, two or three Michelin star restaurant. Then after a few years, I felt, I still go to this kind of restaurants and I still think, they have a huge uh, role in culture and even in um, society. It's like the, the big um, fashion houses indicating where I think the industry and where uh, everything that we are eating is going to and where it should go to. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm a... I'm a of the terroir, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of the terroir of the land, and it was very important to me to try to get closer to um, the produce. So I started working in some several bistros, even an Italian, sm- very small trattoria in Paris, owned by an Italian couple. And the end of my few years, I spent ten years in Paris. At the end, I worked with 
um, a baker called El Kaiser. Um, yeah, I don't think he's considered a baker anymore. I think after 300 plus uh, bakeries worldwide, I think it's more than a baker. But um, yeah. <laughs> but he's actually an amazing, amazing baker. I've seen him work at, at the time. And I've done cookbooks and consulting for medium size and big companies in the industry as an R&D chef, uh, creating concepts, etc. Then in 2010, I came back to Tel Aviv, um, published two cookbooks in Israel that uh, actually won some prizes worldwide. One is called Seafoodpedia, about uh, like a guide for fish and seafood, and another one is about baking with another local baker. I owned a restaurant called Elba for three years. I was the chef and owner. Then I closed it and I uh, joined my partner, Omer Bengal. He's a chef as well in a restaurant uh, called Boot. Okay. Um, and uh, we've been running the restaurant for nine years already. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow, yes. <laughs> since since two thousand. 14 yeah okay and uh, and yeah I i'm just curious like uh, in the 90s you said you started working how did the thought of coming in the kitchen come to you what was israel like back in the 90s i mean we can only imagine from outside 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 israel but how did this idea come and what approach you took did you go to a school or or how was that so um actually the idea came earlier when i was a teenager well, my grandmother on my father's side grew up in Belgium, in Antwerpen, and in Paris in the 20s and 30s. Okay. So La Belle Epoque, you know, mm -hmm. Escoffier was still cooking in London at the time. It was a brilliant time. Uh, well, <laughs> the end of the 30s, not so much in Europe, but mm -hmm. 20s and the 30s was a brilliant time to be in Europe um, for art and the culinary arts. And um, she used to cook amazing dishes, which I only, after moving to France, I understood how uh, French are they. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but she brought plates from Limoges. And we had, you know, Shabbat dinner on Friday night with um, deboned stuffed chicken roasted for many hours and a consommé, mm -hmm. you know, in a Limoges plate. And... There was something about it that always, I, I want to say moved me, but I think it's even more than moved me. From a very early age, I was, I'm coming from a family of engineers. Mm -hmm. And the expectation is for me to do, go and do, you know, my uh, bachelor and then master's, uh, like all my family and become an engineer and, um, you know, very cerebral, how do you say, uh, logical family. Yeah, academic. <laughs> yes. And, um, I was, I think, now looking back, I was looking for something which has technology and uh -huh. technique to it, but that will continue to connect body, mind, and soul. Mm -hmm. So I won't, won't be only a, a mind kind of person. Right. So I found it very easily in, in kitchens, obviously. Um, so I went 
to do my obligatory military service. Mm-hmm. And when I finished it, the day I finished it, I went to work in a restaurant. Uh, it was a need, a necessity to, to cook, to touch, you know, fish, seafood. It was really a need. I, I, I think that, that today I can say this was the need, the need to, to, to create kind of a, a bridge or a ladder between body, mind and soul. I didn't know it at, at that time, obviously 25 or 26 years ago. But th- that was a physical need. To- so, no, I never went into a culinary school. It was, um, I went directly to, into, into restaurants. I started cooking. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's, cooking is, um, till this day for me, it's, uh, it, there's a learning curve that must, for me, mm-hmm. must start with um doing right mm-hmm. it's much practical and also learning learning through through doing so uh, i i believe a lot in um, you know inspiration comes of walking i started cooking i never went to culinary school mm-hmm. i cooked in uh, the 90s in the best restaurant there were actually i think in the 90s there were better restaurants in tel aviv than we have today unfortunately oh, wow. it was after we started Talking peace talks with the Palestinians, there was a feel of hope in the air. Mm-hmm. So people started traveling more and um, reading more and uh, feeling freer to uh, to explore. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had brilliant restaurants in the 90s, very courageous chefs that were cre- starting to create what we are trying to do now in Boot a local uh, culinary identity. And what was Israeli food like back then? Like Israeli restaurants, I mean, were the restaurants serving the local, I mean, the Arab influenced all the immigration from Jews or was it more French, the kind of food in Israel at that point? So so I think first, first of all, we need to speak about Israeli cuisine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think there is one, to be very honest. Um, I think we it's too, we are too young as a country as in a culture to uh, to have something that we call Israeli cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, in the nineties, the restaurant I went to work in tried to start to work with local ingredients, Palestinian, Arabic, Shamic ingredients. You know, Shams is like the big Syria, mm-hmm. uh, Syria, Lebanon. Uh, Northern Jordan in uh, Palestine were called Shams, which is the same uh, kind of cuisine that you find in the east of Turkey. Okay. Uh, Gaziantep, that I hope will survive this crazy yeah. earthquake and we can go and visit uh, Gaziantep again. Uh, an amazing cuisine, but it was uh, this development kind of stopped, I think because of the what we call the second intifada the second rise of the palestinians against the israeli occupation um, people didn't really want to hear about and obviously not to eat food from um, that sounds palestinian Um, so there was a beginning in the 90s then it disappeared for a while 
before the 90s, uh, there was no local cuisine. There was local cuisine in Palestinian villages, obviously. Mm-hmm. But Israelis, it was a mixture of two things, of very oppressing two things for kitchen. One is mm-hmm. it was a very strong socialist country. Right. So um, enjoying a meal was considered, um, you know, capitalist and wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, also, the Jewish way of thinking is, um, it's not a Greek, you know, there's the Jewish-Greek, um, uh, I'm going way, way back in reading history, you can cut it mm-hmm. out whenever you want. Yeah? No, please. <laughs> but the, there's the Greek way of thinking, uh, ancient Greek of uh, beauty and uh, aesthetics, okay. and there's the very, very cerebral uh, kind of Jewish logic uh, kind of uh, way of thinking, uh, more Protestant, and, and, and the Greek one is more Catholic, let's say. Mm-hmm. So this was a very strong thing, I think, until the 90s. In the 90s, it started, then it kind of disappeared, and it was more of um, restaurants uh, influenced by, um, by um, let's say, um, fashion. Uh, there was a moment where everybody was cooking Ferran Adria, yeah. uh, technical, you know, Sferua mm-hmm. and emulsion mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, using foams, etc. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment when everybody discovered the Japanese cuisine. Mm-hmm. And now everybody or a lot of the restaurants are discovering in the last five years Noma, and mm-hmm. uh, geranium and you know Scandinavian cuisine mm-hmm. and it's interesting it's nice I think it's important but uh, I think we should try and create our own For sure. uh, DNA uh, mm-hmm. ABC mm-hmm. and like how I, I found it very interesting how you touched the subject um, it was it was on my plan but now that we've come to this conversation how the conflict or all these 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 recent years you know it's it's, it's very fresh all that is happening in Israel uh, which I realized while I was there last month. You sh- you told us how that has influenced the, the cuisine of the region. But how do you think, if we see the other aspect of things, do you think the food has influenced the conflict, that it has made some walls break easily because a Jewish or, a, or an Arab in the same land is mostly, for the most part, eating the same food? Do you think that helps as, a, as breaking barriers? Unfortunately not. Mm-hmm. I want, when I was younger, I thought that people sitting together and eating, I was a bit naive maybe, you know, they will become friends. Uh, I don't know if you know the story about World War One mm-hmm. of Christmas, where the German and the French sat together for a Christmas dinner, and then the morning after they started slaughtering each other again. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, food is influenced a lot by borders. I don't think it's influencing borders, not between countries or people. That's a, it's not an inspiring answer. I know, <laughs> I know, but um, but it's a real. I mean, it's one. the truth. Exactly. No, no, yes. it's it's completely the truth. For me, it was. I think it's also the perspective of somebody from Israel compared to somebody from the outside because. While I was there uh, last month, I was there for a week in Jerusalem as well, uh, which is like the crux of all this. 
for me it was very new because the thing is media just sells what can be sold and in the end you don't hear like i was not aware i was ignorant to that the food is so common the language uh, to most extent all all the jews in in jerusalem make an effort to learn arabic and the, normal, the local population speaks so there are so many similarities but yeah it's 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 unfortunate that uh, food is not acting like a like a medium very unfortunate uh, i mm-hmm. think it's becoming very depressing thank god i have wine two bottles Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, in a way, I think it's the other way around. I think that you can see in the last few years a rise in two movements. One is the opening of Israeli, quote-unquote, restaurants in uh, London, Paris, Vienna, uh, the U.S., uh, serving what could be quite easily... And mo- most of the dishes could quite easily be um, tackled as cultural appropriation of Palestinian cuisine. And on the other hand, maybe because as a reaction for this, you have Palestinian chefs, but not only chefs, that are trying to carve their uh, heritage, culinary heritage in stone mm-hmm. and put pen to paper and write books you have Rim Cassis, for example, in the U.S., mm-hmm. writing books, very interesting. Uh, Sami Tamim in London, trying to tell the story of the Palestinian uh, cuisine. And it's a double-edged um, sword, unfortunately, <laughs> because, first of all, this fight is not really interesting for everybody outside of a very, very small circle. Uh, and also... Um, uh, people want to go to the successful restaurants and they don't care about co- uh, appropriation. But I think mostly what happened to Palestinian cuisine and this in, in our restaurant in Brut in Tel Aviv, we are trying to think about it at least. How can we modernize local cuisine? I'm not Palestinian, I'm an Israeli. Mm-hmm. So I won't do Palestinian cuisine because it's, first of all, it's cultural appropriation, but it's also strange or doesn't make any sense for me to cook somebody else's grandmother recipe. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to find how to take recipes from the mountains and the sea and the villages and bring them into a big modern city. What will happen? How can we be with our um, uh, boots in the the, the, the the terroir, the land, and with our mind looking at uh, Pierre Gagnier and uh, mm-hmm. Ferran Adria and Norma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what happened to Palestinians during the um, uh, fight against cultural appropriation is something called in Arab, which is called in Arabic Tzumud, to okay. be attached to and um, Palestinians will only do, most of them, not all of them, their grandmother's recipes. Right. They are afraid of modernizing because maybe modernizing means that you're not, you don't have to come back to your, uh, to your land, mm-hmm. you see? They want wow. to be attached physically to the land through their cuisine. Mm-hmm. And the danger of that is very very clear, if you don't modernize cuisine, it will suffocate and die. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, <laughs> very complicated thing. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful realization because 
when I was there in Israel also, I could observe that uh, I do not know, I mean, I cannot speak much about the Palestinian side of things, but at least Israel, I think, with all the all the boom it has seen in the tech world and the deep tech, I think it has realized this uh, this paradox that you speak about of, of, of the culture and tradition suffocating, you know, that they have uh, incorporated that somehow and and accepting that as a part of the change. But moving on from this uh, whole political aspects of things, uh, what was your reaction when you, when you went? <laughs> yeah, I think we can we can spend, but I think there are enough people speaking about it and we can look <laughs> at a different side of uh, things. But my question to you was, how do you see, like, how did you see the world when you left Israel, when you, when you went abroad to, to France, for example? Anything noticeable that came to you in mind, something completely new in, in terms of gastronomy, in terms of restaurants? Looking, looking back, you, uh, let me see where I understand. Looking back from Paris to Tel- to Israel, exactly like when you reached Paris, like uh, the way the restaurants work, the way the industry works, the way this this episode worked. How did you see it different from how Israel was doing things? Trying not to sound corny, <laughs> um, I uh, when I arrived to Paris, you know, I was astonished by the food, the food culture, restaurant, the wine. I do remember uh, arriving to France in the end of August, I think, and in the beginning of October, I look at the Figaro, it's a very well-known newspaper in France, and on, on the first page, on the bottom of the page, there was a headline, La saison de chasse a commencé aujourd'hui, the season of game, mm-hmm. uh, game birds and mm-hmm. started today. And I was like, oh my, that, that's ha- what happened? Wow. <laughs> but then after maybe three years, I think, I started to feel um, that I'm missing um, fla- certain flavors. And I love, for example, langoustine. Who doesn't? But we have very, very good crystal shrimp in Israel. And uh, I asked myself, what what do I prefer? And I said, well, I do prefer crystal shrimp for, to langoustin. And I thought about what kind of meat do I want to eat? And I said, I prefer lamb and goat over um, sometimes a very nice piece of charolais beef because it, it's a part of my DNA. I was born here, I, I grew up here, so lamb is, is a very local thing. So I, I, Paris was like the best university you can ever imagine. Not only the walking restaurant part, obviously. Amazing people to walk with, crazy, frightening. It was, you know, it, it was even before Anthony Bourdain tell, told everybody how the <laughs> kitchen in New York is. Yeah. So the kitchens in Paris were crazy, violent, drunk mm-hmm. people. But I learned so much every day. But also I learned so much on the weekends, not cooking, it, but eating and traveling. But a part of me looked at Tel Aviv and said, There's, well, it's not Paris. But it's it's mine, you know. I I I miss it. I I hate the weather in Tel Aviv. 
it's a horrible city to live in. It's very expensive. Uh, no good traffic, uh, public transportation. Traffic is hell. Um, but it's mine. What can you do, you know? And was it like a was it like a cultural shock for you? Because late earlier you told us how the Jewish mindset is that food is one of the part oh. of your day, and like I think coming from India also, food is just another thing that you do, you know. And then you go to a country where uh, game birds are a part of the newspaper. How was that cultural <laughs> shock? It 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 was it was such a cultural shock that I understood actually that day with this headline in the Figaro that. I need to spend a few years in order to, I cannot understand it in my um, mind. I need to understand it in my body. Okay, I need to, I will need to, uh, to, to, to get to a moment where I wake up and the smell in the air will tell me, Okay, it's spring, and my body will cry for more more mm-hmm. mushrooms. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds maybe stupid, but I I said I want to be. I don't know if I can be, and I'm mm-hmm. not, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a part of this unbelievable culture. But I want to absorb it. I, I, I'll tell you something. I think I didn't tell anybody before. Maybe expect, expect my except my wife. You know that except your brain, all of your cells uh, are renewing themselves every seven years. Your entire body is a new body. Mm-hmm. So after two months, there I told my wife, we need to stay here at least seven years. So my entire body will be French. Okay. <laughs> so we yeah we stay ten. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 pretty interesting. I think uh, how we all connect with food, but then in such different ways, like the role food plays in our life can be so different. And it's it's not like it's right or wrong. The thing is just priorities, the politics, the status of the country, the conditions yes. it's gone through. I think it's it's impressive. And then to learn all that, and I can only imagine the challenge of like somewhere or the other, you want to bring back, I mean, you want to look for what's happening in your land, as you said, in Tel Aviv. But of course, your reference cannot be, I mean, you can take lessons from, from France, but unfortunately, it can't be the reference. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, You mindset, thought about uh, going back to India and opening a Mughal <laughs> in India? <laughs> I did. At one point, I did. I actually went back to India and I, I, I was, I like, when I worked in, in, in Noor, it was a two Michelin star in Spain. Then I went to Lestrance for, uh, for in Paris and then I, I thought like my plan was always I'd go back to India and you know like every 19 year old patriot guy from India that okay I'll go back and I will contribute to everything that I learned and I'll create the first three mission yeah exactly so the first thing I did is I, I, I went to a French restaurant in in Bombay and Bombay is like it is a very international city. There are people from all walks of life. There's a lot of money. Money is not a problem. And I worked with a, sh- a French restaurant. I will not name them, but the, the maitre d' and the chef were both French. It's not like Indians doing French food. Uh, I saw them open. I saw them sell everything French from a Blanc to the Herbeuf Bourguignon, like basic French food, which they can be understandable. And within two months, they switched to chicken popcorns and uh, fried chicken wow. and stuff like that. Because, of course, coming to India, you are already restricted that maybe 70% of the population is vegetarian. Uh, yeah. Most of them don't eat beef. And then uh, money and culture and class are not the same thing. 
you can yes. have a ton of money but you will not understand the flavor profile and which is why actually yeah. i took that i took that uh, i think india is just not ready at the moment and doesn't necessarily need i think we all can have our own likings and still respect the country or or on that front but it's just it's not ready it's just how noma says you know time and place is just so important to understand time and place it's you know I, I come first of all I agree with you completely but I want to mm-hmm. challenge what you said if I can mm-hmm. I know you're interviewing me but if I can <laughs> no please I think what you're saying is very true mm-hmm. uh, and this is why even though there are fine dining restaurants in Tel Aviv mm-hmm. it's less my cup of tea because I think it's a Western European kind of food Western mm-hmm. European kind of plates plating um, meals techniques mm-hmm. and what we are struggling with in the last five years in boot is to find a way to create we are not doing fine dining we're doing bistro gastro but even though um, trying to create a Middle Eastern mm-hmm. high-end restaurant even though it's not really fine dining mm-hmm. and it took us some time and then we went to Istanbul Mm-hmm. And we went to Istanbul. I'm not talking about the amazing high-end restaurant like Turk and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and others, Mikla, but we went to Chia, you know, okay. Musa's. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it's a simple restaurant, but Musa, the chef, is an anthropologist by training. Right. He has a very famous book by Faden. And He is researching the different recipes of the huge Ottoman Empire. Okay. And I started to say to myself and my partners, you know, guys, maybe we should look closer to home. And actually what we are doing now, we are serving kind of a, it's a tasting menu, but not in the Western style of one dish after the other. Mm-hmm. but more of a Mediterranean style of, um, you have at the beginning, we, you've seen, you've, you've seen it, yeah. <laughs> five, six plates mm-hmm. to share, and then pasta like in Italy, to share mm-hmm. like a primi. We are still struggling to understand what it is, but you know, I don't know India, but mm-hmm. you, had, you had kings in India, so you had high-end cuisine. Totally, yeah, yeah. So what I started understanding lately in the last, I don't know, a few years, that we, mm-hmm. we need to learn from Mugaritz and Noma and Michel Brass, and, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't need to copy them no. and the way they are thinking. We need to see how rigorous they are about their art and the mm-hmm. um, uh, sourcing of produce, obviously, and seasonality and research of uh, terroir, but bring it home in the most historically, sociologically uh, right way. So yeah. you should create something which is more local, not only in flavors, mm-hmm. but also something that would go, will be um, right for the people who eat it. As, and when, when you say that people in India don't need this kind of eating, mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, I'm completely in, in agreement with what you say. I think uh, most people, what they do is they, they force a culture on the other culture. Like there are, exactly. I, can, I can name you 
hundreds of restaurants in India, for sure it's happening in Israel also, who are serving sea buckthorn on the menu, which is not, nothing to do with it, but just because they've spent two months in Noma, it looks like that is the source of acidity. But I think in India, there are natural flowers which are dried and used as acidic flavors. So that is, I think it's very important what you said to pick up the philosophy, yes. pick up the, the social aspect of it and apply in your own context. I think context yes. is so big in a general family meal. It's it's, yes. it's so huge. I, and I really, I really hope that this is um, a movement that we'll start seeing elsewhere. Unfortunately, I don't think with guys like 50 Best mm-hmm. or uh, you can see it because you need to do a certain cuisine Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, things to should be plated in mm-hmm. a specific way, and uh, there is a specific um, ceremony to things. But then you know, you go to Japan, mm-hmm. you sit in a very. It could be seen as a doll room mm-hmm. with no paintings or chandeliers or anything just a wooden bar, you know, you eat an omakase, mm-hmm. and, um, well, everybody knows that Japanese cuisine is a huge thing, so they get mm-hmm. this, the Michelin stars, but you get nothing on yeah. the plate. It's some sashimi, uh, but there's so much culture in Japanese. We learned, mm-hmm. um, you are much younger than me, so you don't mm-hmm. know that 30 years ago, you would serve mm-hmm. raw fish to someone, <laughs> In the U.S. or London, mm-hmm. or even Europe, they when they will say, uh, "My friend, uh, there's a problem with my fish. <laughs> you know, it's not cooked." <laughs> so I think I'm really waiting for um, an amazing Indian experience mm-hmm. uh, in the entire a- aspect, because mm-hmm. for me, food. Uh, restaurants is much more than food. It's much mm-hmm. more than, you know, if it's tasty or not. You can eat a pita sandwich and it will be extremely tasty. Mm-hmm. You don't need more than that. Huh? You don't need to yeah. spend three and a half hours and 250 euros mm-hmm. in order to eat tasty. Mm-hmm. That's easy, okay? But I, my, my, the places I'm interested in are places that are telling you a story. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think that's. Uh, I think people are also realizing. I think the more often I'm speaking with, uh, due to my work, journalists or food writers, people who frequent these restaurants and mostly invited, mostly not paying from their pockets, and they are still they are tired. So the people who are not even paying are already tired, and the prices are going up. We are seeing the worst inflation the world has seen. So I'm just waiting to see what's next. But uh, this is definitely, I mean, if you see in a 50-year context, yes, it looks like fine dining and tasting menu is the format. But if you take the history of the world as a context, it's a very small part of uh, what we've seen. And that's why uh, every day you're seeing more actors and restaurants who are coming out with concepts and 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 not and ignoring these lists in a way which is i think i think good because you see the list repeating the same names again and again and that's because the rest are not interested to be in that in that race you know and that's that's, that's super interesting to see what comes uh, what comes next but if you could tell us a little about what do you do today because uh, I, I i met you we sat in the lab and i would like the people to know what what is it that you do 
What am I doing today? That's a very interesting question. Very good one. So first of all, I'm still the owner of Brut, and we have an amazing team, and I have a partner, as I said, called Omer Bengal, who uh, still is still in charge of the kitchen there, and I'm very involved, or trying to be very involved with um, with the food menu and the wine menu. But unfortunately, I'm not cooking anymore. I'm a how do you say? How do you call it? A vagabond? No, not a vagabond, chef. Fugitive, exactly. So I'm a fugitive, exactly. Um, it took me more years than you to to flee the kitchens, but I did. Um, and actually, um, I didn't plan it, to be very honest. A few years ago, Omer and I and another friend who who is he's now a partner. His name is Asaf. We worked at Boot at the time, and we met an extremely interesting guy called B.Z. Goldberg, who is now the CEO of our company. That, uh, and we, we find someone here who is even more, how to put it politically correct, even more disturbed and crazy than us, completely obsessed with knowledge about food. He's a filmmaker but completely obsessed about knowledge of food, technology, techniques, flavor, taste, aromas. And we understood that there's a huge, there's a big problem. There's a huge problem. Um, We'll we'll not do it too uh, techy, but people don't know. Google it, guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a thing called flavor houses in the world of food. People don't know about them because they keep themselves as transparent, transparent as the Illuminati, okay? <laughs> um, but everything we eat which is processed, or almost everything which we eat which is processed, meaning not a whole vegetable, a whole cut of meat or fish, has flavor inside. There's the big flavor houses, there's the small ones, but when you eat a strawberry yogurt, the yogurt flavor and the strawberry flavor do not come, not from yogurt and not from strawberries. They come from labs, uh, unfortunately, but it's it's a true story. And even most of the meat, when we eat cheap meat, um, like burger, uh, frozen burgers, patties, nuggets, um, they have meat flavors because it's very cheap meat that doesn't have enough flavor. And we looked at the the entire ecosystem, food, uh, the big food ecosystem, the 15 trillion, I don't know, 13, 14 trillion uh, market. And we said, we know something about flavor, about taste. And something here doesn't make sense. There are crucial issues of sustainability, of... Uh, blood pressure and other uh, kind of um, diseases created by food, uh, either by uh, uh, high consumption of salt or white sugar or uh, high uh, consumption of meat. And um, we said, there's an Einstein, Albert Einstein said, you cannot solve a problem using the same way of thinking that was used to create it. And the food system is doing the same thing for 80 years. The big companies are creating 
product for us to buy in the supermarkets and the um, flavor houses gives flavor to it in an artificial way even when it says natural flavors mm-hmm. they have artificial solvents and carriers etc so we said something is wrong and we want to do something which is in a way for us as chefs was very clear we need to create a company that answers all of modern eaters it should create food which is sustainable uh, clean and clear very clear label affordable healthy and most importantly delicious it must be delicious if we want create delicious food it could be sustainable it could be natural it could be healthy but nobody will want it it was very you know we're chefs we know if it's not good nobody would buy it so um, we created a The Mediterranean food lab uh, and we started playing with fermentation because um, we thought there's a huge potential in fermentation looking to the east to Japan and China and uh, uh, other parts of uh, Asia and we are building what we are calling a flavor house 2.0 which I'm a co-founder and the chief product officer which is a A nice uh, way of saying I'm involved in uh, uh, everything regarding flavor and, uh, and recipes mm-hmm. and um, and so this is what I do on a daily basis I go to a lab mm-hmm. in the middle of Tel Aviv and we create new flavors and we find ways to make other people's food other companies food much more delicious and keeping it extremely healthy and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and affordable and sustainable. Wow. So this is my daily job. Wow. And like, um, how important do you think, considering this topic right now, how important do you think it's uh, to educate people to read labels? Because, I mean, you were speaking about a flavoring which could easily be confused with the flavoring which exists today. Unfortunately, to the bureaucracy and how it has been, the red tape has been going around it. How important do you think it's important to educate, I don't know, kids in schools or people, you know, basic how to read food labels? I think it's crucial. Mm-hmm. I think I have a small obsession about reading the back page of my um, electricity bill. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, wanna, I don't know why. I want to know, what's, you know what I'm signing, but mm-hmm. it's things that we are putting in our bodies that, I think it's fundamental. I think it's, it's as fundamental as learning how to read and write. Um, it's something that people do, don't always do, and I think people don't understand, or maybe they don't want to understand what they're putting in their body. But, um, you know, look, I talked about white sugar, which everybody knows is very bad for you. And I think, as I'm not the first one to, to say it, you know, it's very obvious, but it's like cigarettes in the 50s. Mm-hmm. It's like um, nobody, nobody asked what is inside cigarettes, okay? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so nobody wanted to know, nobody knew. But when they started to understand what they put in the body, people 
I don't know, nobody, maybe they didn't stop smoking, but some of them did. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, uh, in simple words, it's stupid why we don't know it, but it's just uh, ignorance. And I think uh, there are so many things to care about that, unfortunately, we are not caring about something so important. And how do you see the role of like, uh, global, I would not say Israel specifically, because I think it's a it's a global issue. How do you see global policy making? I remember when we met, you spoke about Switzerland uh, does not allow such kind of things to go through supermarkets. How do you see global policy making responding to this crisis? Are they aware or, or is it just convenient or what is the issue? I, I would do it in the, the more, um, I don't know, pop way of uh, <laughs> answering. Obviously, policy makers mm-hmm. should force companies to do better mm-hmm. as Samuel Beckett said to fail better at least <laughs> but to open you know nobody is saying what's inside what is called natural flavoring you know when people start looking and saying oh this I do not want to eat um, but I think this is obvious this is a must Um but lobbying is fo- is pushing against it. Food food is huge. Huh? People forget that food is huge. Food mm-hmm. companies are extremely strong, and food as 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 a thing, it's it's you know the just the meat industry is almost two trillion dollars yearly. It's huge. But I want to take it back to you and me, and I think there's a role here for chefs. I don't think the chefs are educators. Mm-hmm. I think chefs should create good food uh, and give very good hospitality and a good wine list. Okay, But I do think that sourcing is part of our daily routine and I think chefs should be more vocal in saying um, we do not serve uh, farm-raised chicken in our restaurants because they are bad for the environment and they are bad for you because they are filled with antibiotics. So eat less chicken. We serve less chicken, but we serve organic ones. Just just an example. The same with fish and vegetables. And I think this this is something that especially today when the chefs are becoming, you know, becoming, they are already such pop stars, um, I think uh, I think it's crucial that chefs will start saying, please guys, eat less meat, but eat good meat. I'm not, I, I cannot stop eating meat yet. There's not, there's not a good enough solution for me to stop eating meat. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying, but I cannot. But what we are saying in wood, for example, beef is not raised well in Israel, it's too hot, too dry. So we don't serve beef, or almost we don't serve beef. We all, you know, so I think it's something which we as a community of chefs, it should, it's very natural for us and should be very natural. We should say, you know, guys, you should move to different kind of breads, like we serve here. You go out, you get a beautiful piece of bread next to your uh, meal from, I don't know, um, a small baker, and it's uh, obviously it's fermented naturally, and etc., etc. So why, why, why when you go home and you feed your kids, you buy supermarket, you know, wrapped white bread? Why? Doesn't make any sense. 
eat less, but eat better. I think this is for us, if, this is a role the chefs could quite easily take on themselves. Just, you know, I think it's very, it's even more crucial than learning to read labels because people will start having the understanding that uh, ingredients matter. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of looking because rather than blaming things which are not in our control, I think as you correctly said, we all make a choice every day. Everything we do as chefs is a choice. And unfortunately, it's not just a choice for ourselves. I mean, it's just a choice for our business, yes, but it is going to impact the life of the person dining with us on that night. And also if we can leave him with a message without trying to be educators, but just by being vocal, I think it's a, it's a huge impact because I think every street, every corner of the world, poor or rich, has a restaurant and has a person cooking inside it. You call him a cook or a chef. And I think it's a huge voice for us to have to have yeah. access to, I think. Even when you serve a falafel, mm-hmm. just let's imagine you're serving a, a pita with a falafel and it costs, I don't know, four euros. And you source your tomatoes from someone with a name. Say it. We, we in Brut, we have a board where we write all of our producers. Work a little bit harder and look for a better source for tomatoes or what, what not. And, and talk about it because I think it makes people say, oh, oh, someone is growing the tomato. Obviously, he has a name. He comes from a certain village. So when I go home and I buy my tomatoes, maybe I should go to someone who tells me what is the origin of the tomatoes I buy to serve to my family. I think, you know, so, so we can do small, it's, it's baby steps, but I think uh, crucial ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to the whole act of you, as you said, you became a fugitive uh, fugitive chef. I mean, you are currently working in a lab setting where you don't have customers uh, expecting your results. But of course, you also have the restaurant on the other side, which you're part of the operations. Um, yeah. How do you see being chef as a profession? Do you think it always has to have this? Because I think... Uh, I mean, it's my perspective. I think being a chef has a lot of sacrifices associated to it, which many professions don't have. I mean, I'm not just saying the hours and the and the money, but I'm also saying the set of values you need to have, the decisions you need to make. There's a, a, a huge extent of sacrifice. Firstly, if you could tell us that, do you think that sacrifice is getting better every day with how people are waking up to it? And secondly... Uh, how do you see your life has been like different now compared to you being a hundred percent dedicated to going into a kitchen serving people to having this other side of uh, profession? You know. So, first of all, I love people who works in kitchens. Really, mm-hmm. the sacrifice is something I admire, mm-hmm. and um, being a chef for twenty-five years or cook for twenty-five years took a toll on my life, my, physically. I'm drinking too much, eating too much, mm-hmm. sleeping too little, you know, classical uh, problems for people mm-hmm. spending years in kitchens. I wouldn't change a day. I suffered a lot and I wouldn't change a day. I think it may be who I am mm-hmm. for better or worse. It gave me a set of skills and values which are amazing, you know, modern life, mm-hmm. uh, understanding 
seasons and nature, um, understanding different kind of people, rich and poor, and, and, you know, customers and suppliers. Um, I think it's an amazing profession. In a way, I miss it. Uh, in a way, I thank God I'm not doing it every day because maybe I would die already, you know. So for sure, it's, it's, it's hard being, being a cook, being a chef. In a, all honest, honesty, I still call myself a chef because I'm saying I've done it for uh, enough years to still, you know, surf the end of the, the, the wave of what I've done. Mm-hmm. But I'm, try, I'm starting to uh, feel like, uh, like I'm a, a liar. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you need to suffer. Mm-hmm. In order to, it's 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 like a badge of honor to call yourself a chef, I think, and uh, mm-hmm. not serving customers on a daily basis. I think I'm uh, maybe maybe I will stop calling my chef. My, you know, my daughter, mm-hmm. she really miss. She she has more of her father at home now, which is obviously a good thing. Mm-hmm. I hope. Mm-hmm. But she asked me from she asks me from time to time, okay, when are you going back to to the kitchen? Uh-huh. Because maybe I taught her badly, mm-hmm. but she admires those guys suffering, pushing mm-hmm. through, walking, mm-hmm. um, fighting, struggling, cutting the, themselves, burning themselves, failing, trying again. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated psychological <laughs> thing, you know. Definitely, I mean, I mean, it's been exactly like it's it's been it's it's not a new professional. The oldest professions, hospitality, is one of the oldest professions in the world, and I think uh, it demands. But as you said, it also makes you a different person. It also develops skills in you that you were not aware of, and I think yeah. I think yeah, that's beautiful. I think what's happening today is the definition of chef is changing because the impact that we are seeing today, uh, chefs like you can make is uh, not better or worse, but just bigger than what you could do if you were limited to a restaurant. So I think the impact is getting yeah. bigger. But I think we all have a space in this industry and we all have a, a, a equally important role to play. And I think that's it's beautiful to see people like you who have been trained classically in this format to accept this new format and try to adjust to, your, to it, you know, somehow. Yeah, yeah I understand. I agree, but still, uh, you know, there's something... Mm-hmm. In this um, quarter to seven mm-hmm. thing, yeah, when everything is ready mm-hmm. and there's a buzz in your stomach, yeah. and there's no one in the restaurant now, and everybody's outside having a beer before service, mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's 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 like the crazy it's dinner rush you know the movie yeah <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah it's 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 something it's crazy it's it, it's addictive it's very addictive it's addictive it's it's a fire i mean i think uh, i think it's 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 i mean you're lucky enough to have seen uh, to have felt that and to still relate with that uh, that feeling you know and i think it's special for people the other day i was telling people about bruton the same thing i said that it's it's not a simple restaurant because of people like you who are behind it and and all that you guys are up to 
but uh, yeah i think that's a it's a good point to to wrap up this conversation it's been really insightful i think i have uh, i mean we've met i didn't know so much about you i think today i learned even even more about all that you're up to and uh, yeah i hope that uh, i think israel and tel aviv and the whole land in general is in safe hands with with people like you who have such a different perspective about about food you know thank you <laughs> <laughs> no it's a, it's been such a pleasure yair thank you so much for taking time out and and recording this with us Thank you and hope to see you soon uh, in Basque country. Oh, definitely. I think we have that, uh, we have that pending. <laughs> so that's it from this week's episode of Boy Atras, a podcast where we bring to you the voice of the future of chefs. If you like listening to these interviews, do subscribe to us so that you do not miss out on any of these episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as Boyatras Podcast. We release new episodes every Tuesday alternating between English and Spanish. Mm-hmm.